0: Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast. A community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today. Today, uh, we're starting off a two-week series on the gospel and discipleship. And it may seem like, man, you know, Pastor Dwayne, don't we talk about that a lot? And my answer is, yes, we don't talk about it enough. Because these are the two core things, and these are things that when you look at the life of Christ, and when you look at the things that he talked about, these were the things that he talked about. So we should be talking about the things that Jesus talked about, right? And as we begin today, this may be obvious for a lot of people, but just to make sure that we're clear, full disclosure, full disclaimer, that uh, this is my primary resource in everything. What am I holding here? The Bible, I know for some of you, it's like, I haven't seen paper for a long time because I look at it on my phone and my iPad and all those things. This is the primary resource. And as we look at this, I want to encourage you that if you have any questions about the authenticity and the accuracy of the Bible, let me encourage you to read and to study it out. There was so much scholarship and so much scrutiny that has been placed into this book more than any other book that we have as humans. That's all of us. If you're a human, say, I'm a human, okay? Uh, With No sci-fi here today. So as we walk through, this has been scrutinized, the archaeological, um, the the manuscript evidence, the eyewitness accounts, the corroborating accounts, references from non-biblical sources. I'll back up the claims of the Bible, the literary consistency, the prophetic consistency, the expert scrutiny, and the leader acceptance, the global influence, the changed lives. My changed life is because of this book, the Bible. Amen? God's Word to us. And I say all that not in a prideful or boastful way, but from a a place of if you question it, dig deep. Read the research. Don't just read somebody's blog post, okay, who's angry because they didn't get fruitcake for Christmas this year. Make sure you study it deep. Are you with me in that? Amen. I I know I'm like, "Well, well, duh, but it's not, it's being challenged. It's being challenged in our schools. It's being challenged at so many levels. We, we have backup God is with us he's speaking to us and he's given us so many resources so but that's not my sermon today but it comes from the Bible if you have your Bibles I invite you to do turn or flip or turn them on to Galatians chapter 1 Galatians chapter 1 as we look at the gospel today and also as we do that we also have something in the, your bulletin called a listening guide how many of you use your listening guide every week You know, uh, I encourage you to get that out. That has some notes in there, but it also has in there uh, some of the resources that I use, the books that I use, uh, some of them uh, I love to read. And someone said once when you read a book, you're reading two years of someone's research. So uh, I really encourage that. And at the bottom of that, you'll see some footnotes for some of those things. So, But let's look together. Galatians chapter 1, and we're starting at verse number 3, and here's what it says. It says, may God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. And everyone said, amen. But there's more. I am shocked, Paul saying, I am shocked that you are turning away So soon from God. Who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ? You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news. Listen about that. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say again, what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. So well, Paul said it twice. Let's keep reading today. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people. Paul Was Paul a guy who was concerned about the approval of people? No, no. Obviously not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. So Paul's saying some very bold things. He's saying, look, you've been given the gospel. You've been given the good news, but you're getting off track here. You're getting off track. You're allowing people to twist the truth, to twist the gospel for their own benefit. And he's saying, look, why did you turn away so quickly? What happened here? and i believe this is something that has been it's been it was it was prevalent in Paul's time and it's prevalent in our time today where we see this it's good news it's this is truth and it resonates with us but there's always this twisting of truth and i think especially in the age that we are in where we have so much information we're overloaded with information that the challenge is not getting information the challenge is learning how to decide what information is true have you ever found that You read it, you see a blog post, your friend posts something on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever social media you're on, and you're like, man, that sounds good, but is it true? Is it true? And so as we uh, talk about today the gospel, I want us to kind of bring us back to this foundation, this rock. And we're going to talk about what the gospel is. We're going to talk about why there's pushback in it. And then we're going to conclude by talking about what our response is. How do we respond to this? You ready to go? You ready? All right, here we go. So first of all, let's kind of just do a little bit of a review here on what is the gospel. See, the gospel, that word gospel, it literally means good news. Everyone say good news. Good news, okay? It literally means good news. But to understand why it is good news, we need to look at the context and look at where I am in this because it's only good news if I see it as being good news. If, it's not, if we don't understand where we are, it can just seem as news for any kind of news. When we look at the gospel and as we communicate it and share it with our friends and those around us, it's important to look at the context and we're looking at the context of origin. See, the gospel is built on the fact that God created everything and that he has made that fact clear to everyone. It says this in, the, in Romans 1.20. See, God is the creator of everything. What did God create? Everything. Everything, okay? And it says in Romans that he has made this clear for every human to know. The gospel also means that God made humanity in his image. The theological word for that is the imago Dei. He made humanity in his image, and he made humans to be with him forever. How long? Forever, okay? See, we are living souls, Genesis 2 tells us. God made us as a soul. We have a body that we live in, but the body's not going to last forever. My body's not even lasting as long as I hope for, okay? So the body doesn't last forever, but our soul is eternal made by God for the purpose of being with him forever this is what God designed but unfortunately we have rejected God the Bible tells us this book it says that everyone has rejected that we are all sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God that's me hello Dwayne and like Paul I, I, I'm you know I, I'm a sinner <laughs> But I'm a sinner redeemed by God because even though we've all rejected God, whether we have vocally said, I reject you, or rejecting by ignoring. Has anyone ever rejected you just by ignoring you? You ever felt that? And I think that whole ignoring part is one of the strongest forms of rejection that we have as a culture today. But because God loves us, even though I rejected Him, God still reached out to me and loved me, and He still reaches out to you, and He sent His Son to die for us. Isn't that amazing? That even though I rejected him, even though I've done what the Bible has called sin against God, he loved me enough to send his son to die for us. This is the gospel. And so now, as I believe and as I receive, I confess my sin and I invite Jesus to fill my life, I surrender to him, I become a child of God. That's the gospel. And now... I will live with God forever. My soul will be reunited with him. See, this is powerful. There's power in the gospel. Paul says back in Romans, Romans 1.16, he says, look, I am not ashamed of this good news. I am not ashamed of the gospel about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving who? Everyone who believes. It is the power of God, and what that means is that it is powerful for us as individuals that when we surrender our life to Christ, when we give our life to Christ, we receive that power that God's afforded us. His Spirit fills us and empowers us and transforms us. See, the purpose of the gospel in our lives is to transform us, to transform us, to bring us back into alignment with God. But we also know that the power of the gospel is not just limited to those who believe. It's not just limited to just my life or to your life when we receive Christ. See, the gospel has a powerful effect on society on the whole. See, the gospel being lived out through us, it transforms society. And if you're looking for a great book on that, there's this wonderful book by John Dickerson, and I I have it in the footnotes in your listening guide, called Jesus Skeptic. And he outlines a lot of the benefits and the things that Christianity has done for society as a whole, which a lot of times we kind of ignore, we don't push about, because a lot of times we just do things naturally because Jesus is inside of us, transforming us, and we don't kind of toot our own horn or we don't proclaim it all the time. But here's just a few of those things. Because see, John Dickerson writes, he writes that when you study the effects of Christianity on a society, you discover the overwhelming positive effect that it has on a society. And here's just a few. Let's look at hospitals. Did you realize that nine of the top ten hospitals in America today were built and founded by Christians as charities in order to go to the poor and to give them the health care that they need? Nine out of the ten, if you look in the book, you, you can see all the data on that. As we look at the issue of women's rights and equalities, when we study that, we find that the countries with the best women's rights all have predominantly Christian populations. On the other side of that, the countries with the worst women's rights are where Christianity has been outlawed or is socially punished. See, Jesus was the great equalizer. We've been created different but equal. And when Christianity is alive in a society, women's rights start to go up and get strong. Is it perfect? No. There's a lot of work. Why? Because we're sinners. We're struggling through it. But when Christ is not alive in us and when Christ is at work in a society, the rights start to go up. On the other hand, when we have cultures that suppress Christianity and even outlaw it, you see that those countries are the worst at it. Let's look at human equality. When we look at the life of Martin Luther King Jr., we know that he cited the words of Jesus and the Bible as he combated uh, the racism that was happening in his day. He used God's word in the Bible in opposing segregation and in promoting civil rights. And he even used God's word against pastors in the South that were misquoting Scripture. Can, can Scripture be misquoted and misused? Yes. Has it been misquoted and misused? Yes. That's why when we see it abused, we need to talk about it. We need to identify it. But we see from this example in history that we all know well, or we, we should know well. He used God's word. That when they would quote something out, he would bring God's word against them. How powerful is that? It is the word of God that brings life. See, John Dickerson in his book, Jesus Skeptic, he goes on to write that Jesus followers and Christian principles are often the spark beneath world-changing improvements in areas such as science, in ending open slavery, in the founding of universities, and much more, much more. And again, I don't say that from a proud, day, from a proud standpoint, because it's not about me. It's about Jesus. My life without Jesus is not the life that you see in front of you today. Jesus has transformed me, and he continues to transform me. And he uses the word sanctification of that continually growing and building in Christ. But see, when we look at all this data... And when John Dickerson, as he pulled this together, he calls Christianity, in our culture, a keystone species of a healthy society. Now, maybe that whole concept of a keystone species may be new to you, but I think it's a great illustration of what the power of the gospel in a culture. And when we look at keystone species, a great example of this is the sea otter. How many sea otters, lovers do we have out there? You're like, man, I love sea otters. I mean, how could you not? Okay, how could you not? Okay? I saw that picture, and I'm like, I'm going to use it. Okay. See, the sea otters are a keystone species, what scientists and zoologists call a keystone species in the Monterey Bay in California. And they discovered this back in the 1920s. Back in the 1920s in the Monterey Bay, this cute, cuddly sea otter was hunted almost to the brink of, extin- of extinction. Can you believe it? Back in the 1920s. And what happened after that, when they removed the sea otter from the Monterey Bay, they discovered that what was once a vibrant oceanic ecosystem was devastated. That sea life was gone. Everything was gone. And they began to study, why is the Monterey Bay dying? What happened to all the sea creatures that used to come here? And they discovered that the Monterey Bay was dependent on one key thing. And that's the forest of sea, of, 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 of sea kelp. These are giant forests, and maybe you've seen it. If you haven't, I encourage you to, to, to go, go to National Geographic, and it, it is amazing. But these forests of sea kelp, maybe you're from California and you've seen it. But this sea kelp was, is, is what sustains life. It provides food, and it provides a safe place for the smallest of creatures that are the beginning of the food chain. How many scientists out there are like, yep, I'm tracking with you, Dwayne, all right? You're speaking science. Amen, OK? So you're going through. this was important into their life, but the sea kelp has an enemy. And you know what the enemy of sea kelp is? Sea urchins. See, I know, you had a lot of other things going through your head. But the sea urchin is an enemy of the sea kelp. But do you know what the only predator in the Monterey Bay that could control sea urchins was? These cute, cuddly sea otters, okay? If you were a sea urchin, you wouldn't call them cute and cuddly. See, the sea otters were, were keeping the sea urchins in check because they love them. they devour them. They'd probably bring them up on their tummy, and then they'd beat them with a rock, and then they'd eat them, you know? That's a great video. That would have been a great video, okay? So what they did in the 70s is they reintroduced the sea otters, and you know what happened to Monterey Bay? It flourished again. Because the sea otters went down and said, all right, papas and mamas back in the house. We're going to have some grub, okay? So they went in, and sea life, it flourished. But here's the point that I want you to get today. This is the power of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel, that when the gospel is in society, it's not just those who believe, but all of society. It flourishes because of this. And the evidence is overwhelming. So with all of this evidence, with all this data that we have, why do we reject the gospel? Why do we ignore it? Why do we push it away? Well, I think for a lot of people, this whole aspect of the gospel is just its confusing. Have you ever talked to somebody, and you talk about how like the gospel is good news, and maybe you pull out Christian Christianese, and that's why we have to be careful with Christian with Christianese, but you talk about Jesus and about him dying for us and saving us and rescuing us, and someone's going, I don't need rescuing. I'm all good. It's all good in my hood, Dwayne. I don't know what's happening to you, but I'm... I am a good person. I don't need Jesus. I don't even believe in God. There's a confusion about the origin. But I think a lot of times this confusion comes from the fact of when they look at the cost. Because there's a cost to the gospel. See, we love the benefits, but not the cost. See, the gospel is not good news for some because when we look at the gospel, there are actually two deaths involved. Did you know that? There are two deaths involved. Jesus died and he gave his life for us to pay for our sins. But there's also a second death and that death is us, those who believe. See, it says in Galatians 2, it says, I have been crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, been cru- have crucified the flesh with his passions and with his desires. It says that later in chapter 5. See, Jesus, he gave his life for me because he loved me but in order for me to receive it i need to die to myself and we don't hear that a lot in western christianity because we talk a lot about the love of god and is that true yes the love of god overcomes everything in our life that he's given to us but in order for me to receive and to become there's a death that happens in me i die i die to myself i surrender to christ and that's offensive for many See, Jesus had this experience when he was talking to the rich man in Mark 10. In Mark 10, we see this record of a rich man coming to Jesus, and he says, Jesus says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, this was somebody they knew they had a soul and that it was eternal. And Jesus corrects them and says, first of all, there's only one good, and it's God. But looking at him, he walked him through several things. But then he recognized that for this rich man, that money was the thing that owned him. Now, money in itself is not bad, but anything that owns us except for God is bad. It can be a relationship. It can be anything in our life. For this rich man, it was the money that owned him. It's almost like that Smeagol, mine, my precious. And And for many of us, I think in our culture, that's often the perspective that we have. It could be money. It could be relationships. It could be a job. It could be, could be anything, and it's often good things. It's often tools that God has given us to use. So Jesus looks at him, recognizing what owned him, and he said, "Here's what you have to do." He invited him to die to himself by saying, "Go and sell all your possessions and give it to the poor, and then come follow me." And you know what the rich man's response was? He walked away sad. Because he was holding on. What are the things that we hold on to? Those things when the Holy Spirit points out. A wrong thought, a relationship, a possession of some sort. And he's saying, are you willing to surrender that to me? This is what Jesus did with the rich man and he walked away sad. See, being rich is not just about money. Being rich can be our own assessment even of our soul, just like we talked about earlier, where it can be, my soul's good. I am good. I am a good person. That's why Jesus started off his most famous sermon, which is the Sermon on the Mount, with the first beatitude. His first beatitude was, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the first thing he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means they've emptied themselves of everything. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of God. See, when we have hands that are so full of things, how can we carry what God has for us? That's why the Quakers have this prayer. They first, they hold their hands out upside down and say, Lord, take away anything from me that's getting in the way. Getting rid of everything. Sometimes it's pain, it's hurt. It can be anything, possessions. And then they turn their hands upward to say, now I'm ready to receive. Let me invite you to do that in your life. Just as you pray, just that God, anything that I'm holding on to that you're saying, it, it needs to go. Because I want to receive. I'll, only empty hands can be filled. Because, see, whether we're confused or whether we're put off by the cost, that'll bring us to the temptation. And one of the biggest temptations that we have as a culture, I believe, is that, temp, is that temptation to re engineer and create our own gospel. It's okay to laugh, that's pretty funny. Right? when we go, the cost is too big and it's confusion. We turn into this mad scientist, and we try to create or we try to Frankenstein our own gospel. We try to create our own. I'll buy my own. I'll create my own. See, Paul calls this. He calls this a twisting of the truth. Because see, anything that has great value, there's always a counterfeit to that. Just go to the streets of New York. Okay, you can get a Rolex for ten bucks. You can get an iPhone probably for twenty bucks. Is it it a real iPhone? Probably not. Does it last? Counterfeits never last. But when we have something of great value, we want it, but we don't want to pay the price. So we go to the counterfeit and we go, this is good enough. But anything that's counterfeit will eventually break down. See, Mark, Mark Sayers calls this a secular schema. A secular schema. It's this idea of we like the gospel and we like what it is, but we don't like the cost of it. We don't like admitting that I'm not good. So what we do is we look at the gospel, this this amazing, this powerful thing that God has given to us and trusted us with, and we look at it through a secular lens. This is what Mark Sayers says. He says that we we, we look through this paradigm of creation, fall, sin, redemption, salvation, and heaven through the secular lens. And in that process, what we do is that we replace God with me. Now I become God. See, God wants me to to die to myself and do that, so I'll become God of myself. I'll, I'll be the engineer. It'll be all about me. And what that means is that, you know what? I'm a good person. Whatever I think, whatever I feel is right. Now, just look at me. Is everything that I feel and everything that I think right? Talking with Dwayne. You should all be saying no, okay? Now, I work really hard up here, but not everything that I feel is right. See, there are some times that I feel anger. Is the anger real? Yeah, it's, it's, if you saw it, you'd be like, that's, that's pretty real. You're freaking me out, man. So it's, but is it right? Right? I can't tell you how many times that there's been a response that has been stirred by anger that I've had to go and say, you know what, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I've done that with my kids, haven't I? Can I be honest and real? How many of you have ever gotten angry at kids and you've had to ask a apology? Come on now. Don't let me stand up here like this. I know you, okay? What happens in that moment? Dad was angry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me this happens forgiveness do you guys forgive me yeah all right I, I owe you lunch now by the way so actually i owe you lunch for the, every day so <laughs> in some way or form this is that happens this is that reality see my anger was real but just because it's real doesn't make it right and that's the danger of the secular schema when we pull it through because see, in this idea of where I'm right, and if it's whatever's here is real and it's right, sin now becomes anything that opposes me, anything that opposes what I think or what I feel. And in the, in this scenario that he's talking about, anything that is oppressive to me is wrong and needs to be removed, including God or religion. In other words, anything that cut that doesn't come from me is oppressive. Have you ever experienced that with anybody? Have you ever experienced that with yourself? You can just answer quietly to yourself if that's something you've experienced. I think we've all experienced that from time to time. We want to be justified. We want to be told that we're right. So when we walk in this way, salvation becomes from the lens of myself. Since I am the Savior, salvation is about me being true to whatever I think is best because I'm the engineer. It's all about me. I don't need God. I'm going to make my own. And heaven becomes all about the good life. It becomes about just, just happiness and, and pleasing everything, whatever my flesh feels I'm going to do because it's right and, and it's true to me. And so we walk that out. And any definition that defines or binds me must be rejected. And see, that sounds good. And the Bible even says that sin tastes good for a while. It has its appeal for a while. But what we need to be reminded of is the problem that all of this eventually collapses just like that counterfeit Rolex stops working or that counterfeit iPhone stops working or that scarf that you bought for five bucks starts unraveling. The same thing happens here. See, the result from all this is burnout, anxiety, and depression because when we try to be God, we are terrible at being God. If you see anybody who's trying to be God, you better run. Either to them with the power of Jesus Christ and give them an opportunity to repent, or you better stand back because at some point that's going to blow up. It always, it always fails. It always fails. See, we're trying to build and we're trying to build ourselves pretending to be like God, but we're not God. We don't have the tools. When you try to be God, you don't have the God tools because we are terrible at it. See, Philippians 4 says, I can do all things, but we can only do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is the power of our lives. This is the power of it. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this this, this whole idea of of the the nature in us and the nature of that Paul's talking about of twisting the truth? The response to this is discipleship. You know, back when I was doing my Q&A, it'll be three years this Easter now that I've been lead pastor. And about, two, and, about, and about three years ago, when I went to a QA and a and they began to ask me questions about how I moved forward and, and, what, and what, what I thought, my answer became discipleship so often that they began answering me, they being you, answering me questions. And you say, I'm going to ask you a question, but you can't say discipleship. And I said, well, I'll just sit here quietly then. Because discipleship is so important. It's so important. See, discipleship is that surrendering to and that following Christ, and it involves both learning as well as being discipled and teaching others. It's a two-way thing. Discipleship is about I'm being discipled, but I'm also discipling somebody else. So as I'm receiving, I'm giving it away, and it's growing, and it's growing in strength. But see, Dallas Willard, who is just a wonderful man of God, philosopher, theologian, he says that discipleship is the great omission from Western Christianity today. Discipleship is that missing part from it. It's that missing part. See, when we look at the stats that are, that are, that are coming out today, we, we know that two-thirds of young adults, teenagers, 20-somethings, who grew up in the church, grew up in churches like this, we're finding that two-thirds of them are leaving the church and walking away. And they're not just leaving the church, but often what happens, and what happens most times is when you end up leaving the church and separating yourself from the body of Christ, you die, and you end up walking away from God. And that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart as I think about raising kids. It breaks my heart as I look at people who I love, as I look at family members, that they were faithful to church, going to church, going to people that should be teaching them and training them and discipling them. And they get to this point and they walk away. But there's a third left. Do you know why one third stays in the middle of it? Because they've been discipled. Because they have what? David Kinneman calls this resilient faith, this resilience in there that burns up as because of discipleship because there were two thirds that somehow didn't get it whether they ignored it or no important to their life but there was a third that somebody walked up and said I see you, I care about you can we get together for coffee and read the Bible or can you want to come to my Bible study or why don't we go out and find someone to share Jesus with and they began walking in these things sharing life on life and we have this third that has stayed and they're resilient and they're making an impact in the world today and many of those and of those third are here today if you look around and you see a young person you see a 20 something a 30 something they're here you need to be thanking the lord for them and pouring into their life but also remembering that discipleship is both ways so that when they speak you're also listening to them amen see we can speak i can speak obviously you may may not may not as well as you want me to speak but we're all good at speaking and sharing but we need to be listening for what's coming back our way Is that question. We need that. I need to hear that. And there were so many times that I've missed it because I've forgotten to listen. How many of you are like, God, make me a better listener this year. Make me a better listener. Help me to hear and to respond. Some of the greatest discipleship moments come from listening. See, Jesus was a great question asker. He knew how to ask great questions. And when he walked with people and talked with them, they would come with a question. He would say, here's the real question you should be asking. What do you think of this? And the life change and the transformation that happened because of that, it was a discipling moment. See, this is our mandate, this resilient faith. See, some of the most vulnerable people in the body of Christ today are new believers because we drop the ball in discipling them. When someone comes and they give their life to Christ, if we are not there to help and to love and to not force the pace, but to be there and to invite, so many weeds can start to come in. So many rocks can be placed in their way. This is why discipleship is so important. It is so important. This is why I'm talking about it all the time, but we're doing more than talking about it. One of our key things this year, if you were here for the Vision Series, we talked about the analogy of the bridge and how that foundation is so important that we need to pour into it. One of the key things in that is leadership development and is discipleship. And we have a wonderful group director, Dr. Kim Martinez. Kim... Would you mind standing up so we can see? I know. Please don't quit. (laughs) We have a wonderful, let's let's get it for Kim this morning. I know. She hates this, okay? She hates this, but we need to appreciate what she's doing. She has developed, as we talked about developing teams, she's like, I'm going to develop a discipleship team. She has a discipleship team that uh, that she's pulled together and she began to tell me the names. I'm like, yes, they're going to be so good in that. Because we need to be intentional at it. See, there are people that you're about making disciples, and whether I do anything or not, you're just, you're alive in Christ, and you naturally do it. That's why we have a third that don't leave, and they're there. Someone's poured into them. but I want the other two-thirds. I don't want to lose anybody. See, Jesus, he left the 99 to go get, get the one. He said, you're all good here in the pen. All right, great. Let's go get the one. We have a third in the pen. We have two thirds that they've left. We need to be effectively reaching out. The third that are left, training them, empowering them, developing them as leaders, helping them. How can they be effective At creating disciples and then building bridges to our community whether it's the coffee house or so many other ideas we've been talking about the coffee house and it stirred up this whole this 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 vision i believe within shoreline community church of people saying "Uh, you know i've got an idea that i feel like god is spurring in me i'm like great because we need to be building all kinds of bridges i see shoreline community church as having bridges everywhere coming in loving people serving them this is the aspect of the gospel See, the gospel is not about conversion, and I think sometimes we've missed it because we, we thought that the, that the gospel was all about just getting somebody to agree with us. See, agreement can be easy. We can come in, have a conversation, have a debate, and at, at the end make someone go, yep. I did that to my parents all the time. How many kids, you just nod your head to your parents, but inside you're like, I, I'm, I'm not so sure. Not you guys. But. Right? We can get the head nod in our society. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not conversion. It is deep discipleship. To live is to Christ. To die is gain. I will be crucified with Christ. And yet I live. If you want to save your soul, you'll lose it. But if you lose your soul for the sake of Jesus, we know those scriptures, don't we? This is our call. This is our mandate to walk forward in that. And next week, I'm going to be talking about what discipleship is, what it means, and how we're walking forward in it. How we can walk in discipleship, whether it's just you and one other person, or so many different ways. And what I'd like for everyone, everyone to do now is to take out this connection card. Says, so get connected. Maybe you heard somebody talk about it earlier. Would you mind, everybody, grabbing one? Please. <laughs> As we respond today... Here's, here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to write down any what are the questions you have about this discipleship? Are there any hurdles in your either in your life or as it relates to discipleship where you're like, "You know what? <sighs> Pastor Wayne, I hear it and I see it. I want to be about making disciples, but man, I don't know how. Or what does that look like? What does it look like at work? What does it look like at home? What does it look like with kids, with school?" I want you to write down what are the hurdles? What are the things that are in the way of preventing? Oftentimes, one of the biggest hurdles is me. See, when God builds a foundation, he starts with us individually and says, all right, Dwayne, here's some things that I want you to do. But we need to walk in this. Because, see, just because I'm not perfect, that doesn't mean I can't be making disciples and being discipled, right? We know that, right? It's like someone who said, you know, I invited my friend to church, and they said, once, once I kind of get, get everything right and cleaned up, then I'll come, you know? I'm like, well, then I would never go to church. <laughs> because we're always dealing with something. There's something that the Lord is perfecting. We grow stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. But we come together. What are those hurdles? And I want you to write those down. Any questions you have. And if you feel comfortable sharing that with me as we stand and worship together, I'd like for you just just to put that down. Maybe it's one question. Or maybe you want to take two. One for me, here's some questions. And you want to take a second one. This is just for me and, and the Lord. Or me and whoever's walking with me. And as we receive communion today at these stations, I'd like for you to take this and just bring it up and just put it on the table. And then after the service, I want to go through these and read these. And then some of the questions I want us to talk about next week. As we gather together to talk about discipleship, here are some of the questions that, that came up. You don't need to sign it, you don't put your name on it. The only person that I ever embarrassed is Kim, really. So <laughs> what are your questions on discipleship? We need to be having this conversation. What are suggestions you have for me? You know, Dwayne, as you talk about wanting to make disciples, here's some things I'm thinking about. Are there things that, is there a way that I'm getting in the way? Let, let's just take a moment to do this. And then as we respond, I'd like to invite our prayer team to go to the side. We are people of prayer. March 4th, we're starting a weekly prayer service that will coincide with all of our groups from just 5.30 to 6.30 where we we come together and we just pray right here. There's no worship team. It's just us praying that God would empower us to do this. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Lord, help us to respond. You've called us to do this. Help us as we walk forward in this today. Lord, show us the things that we're missing and show us the opportunities that you've placed in front of us to be faithful, I pray. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We are all servants. Would you say that again with me? Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We're listening to you. Speak to us. and Empower us now. Amen. Let's take a time, time to respond. Write down some questions. Bring them up. Let's, let's do communion together. Let's pray together.